This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Well, yes, thank you very much all for coming today. Um, um, my name is Ronald van Bollenhoven, and I'm an assistant professor of medicine in the immunology and rheumatology division here at Stanford. And um, today I'm going to talk about systemic lupus erythematosus, uh, also known as lupus, and um, particularly about a new treatment uh, that we have studied here at Stanford for lupus. And I'm going to go in a little bit of the background of why we are looking at it and what the results with it have been so far. So systemic lupus erythematosus, or SLE, um, is a multi-system disease. It affects multiple organs and organ systems. It's typically a chronic and often a lifelong disease. We don't know what causes it. It's still a mystery, although we have a number of important and promising leads. And what I think is very important, and which I always try to emphasize to both um, uh, physicians, colleagues, and uh, patients, is that this is really a spectrum of diseases. Lupus can fortunately be a mild disease that causes discomfort, uh, unpleasant symptoms, bothersome symptoms for sure, but not really serious, or it can range to the very severe and even life-threatening kinds of lupus. So it's really a range. And in fact, patients with lupus can be so different one from the other that it's often hard to really think of it as just one disease. Um, there's all kinds of ways of looking at that, but the most uh, compelling is, of course, that we think there is fundamentally something wrong with the immune system and that the abnormality of the immune system is the same in all patients, but it sometimes manifests itself in different ways. Now, lupus um, affects women far off more often than men, and we'll talk a little bit later about what the reasons for that could be. Um, there is a sense that patients who are African-American or Hispanic may have the disease more frequently or more seriously, um, and there is a great deal of research looking into that. It now seems from data that has just been published uh, about a week ago, that actually this is a so-called confounding factor. That it turns out that it's probably more related to socioeconomic status. Um, so that's probably not something intrinsic in the ethnic background. Lupus can start in the third and fourth decade, like it says on the slides, but actually I want to emphasize it can even start in the second decade in teenagers. And in fact, the most severe lupus does often start in the teenage years. And um, that's also, obviously, for a variety of reasons, a very hard situation to deal with. Um, how many patients with lupus are there? Well, that's a difficult question to answer because sometimes lupus is underdiagnosed, so the patient may have it, but the doctors didn't realize it, and the diagnosis wasn't made for a long time, or maybe never. Or it could be the other way around, that the doctor says, well, you know, I don't understand exactly what you have. It's probably lupus, even if maybe the right diagnosis was something different. So there's both underdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. And because of that, it's hard to get a good sense of how many patients really are out there with lupus. The, um, the American College of Rheumatology, the ACR, has established criteria. And the criteria basically say that, well, you know, you look down the list of the symptoms and the signs, and then you find out how many things the patient has. And then you can have these criteria to make a diagnosis. That's a very strict 
interpretation. And if you use that, the number of patients with lupus is actually fairly small. That would make it an uncommon disease, one in 10,000 or so. Um, if you really go by what the physicians make in terms of a diagnosis, it's a higher number because the physicians will not always use these criteria. They will look at, well, what is the, uh, what is the clinical presentation overall and how does it best fit with the understanding that we have of these diseases. And then finally, if you ask uh, the Lupus Foundation of America, which is a, an organization you know, for and by the, the patients, they come up with an even bigger number. And the way they get it is by calling people randomly and saying, well, do you have lupus? And they've, didn't, they've done that, and they called a 1,000 randomly chosen telephone numbers. And so many had said, well, yeah, gee, now that you ask me, it's actually I do have lupus. And, or my doctor said I had lupus or something like that. So it turns out that actually a lot of people are being told by a physician or other healthcare provider that they have lupus. And that's probably an overestimate. So like I said, in that situation, it might be that the doctor was sort of thinking out loud and saying, well, you know, gosh, I think it's uh, probably lupus or something like that. And the patient remembered that. And years later, when they got called, they said, oh, yeah, I have lupus, but they may not really have had it. So there's probably an overestimate on the side of Lupus Foundation, an underestimate if you use the very strict criteria. And so I think the truth, truth is somewhere in the middle. And if we say it's one in a thousand, that's actually a fairly common disease. It means that you would run, you would expect to run into someone with lupus every once in a while, just at random. And of course, as a, as a doctor, that becomes an important disease because you you would expect to see patients with that from time to time, even you know, irrespective of your specialty. Now, there does seem to be something funny about lupus that it's so predominantly a disease of female patients, although men can get it for sure. And um, the question is, is it, uh, does it point to a role for sex hormones? And there's a couple of other indications that that might be the case. Women who have lupus, if they become pregnant, um, have a higher risk for having a flare of the lupus during pregnancy. Doesn't always have to happen, doesn't always have to be serious, but it's certainly a concern. If women who have lupus take contraceptives that contain estrogen and usually also other uh, progestogens, uh, but if they contain estrogens, there is a higher likelihood that they will flare when taking. Now, that's actually a controversial statement that I made there because that was true when the, est when the estrogen-containing oral contraceptives were first brought on the market, and that was in the 60s, and they had lots of estrogen. Nowadays, if you think about contraceptives, it's primarily things like um, orthonovum or uh, things like that, and they have very small amounts of estrogen, and they probably don't have a big risk of flaring up lupus. So we nowadays recommend for lupus patients who, who desire contraception that when the disease is otherwise fairly well controlled, that it's okay to take oral contraceptives. And then there are mouse models. Now there's, there's several different mouse models, but one of the ones that I've worked with in the lab, and that is also, I think, of most interest, is the NZB by NZW mouse model. These are mice that spontaneously get a disease that very much looks like lupus as far as you can go with comparing mice to human beings. Um, and again, in these mice, the female mice get the disease much more often and much more severely than the male mice. And if you change the sex hormone status, which of course in an experimental setting you can do, then you find that you can actually change the pattern. So if you, if you would take the male mouse and perform a castration followed by the administration of female hormones, then the, the lupus would be much more severe like the female mice get it. This is an example of what lupus does. Um, this is a classic facial rash in the so-called butterfly pattern, and it spares the nasolabial folds. But it's also more widespread than that. There's some on the skin, on the, on the chin, there's some on the neck, there's also maybe a little bit on the forehead, so it's very widespread. 
this is typical an indurated an inflammatory type of rash it's not just having flushed cheeks which everybody can get even you know from having a fever or just from exercise but this is really an infl inflammation in the skin it's often precipitated by sunlight um, this is the, the arthritis that lupus patients can get swelling and painful stiffness of the joints often in the hands but also the larger joints and this is an example of the photosensitive rash where you can get what looks like very severe sunburn, but this can happen even from a very minimal sun exposure. And this is obviously a somewhat uh, older person. And when lupus occurs in the elderly, it often has very much of the skin manifestations, but thankfully not so much of the internal organ, which we will talk about in a moment. This is when you do a biopsy of the skin, you can get a sense of what is happening. I didn't bring a pointer, so I'll keep pointing with my finger, but I, let me know. Oh, well, thank you. Um, this is a biopsy of the skin, and uh, if you're not used to looking at it, this is uh, the edge of the skin, and then this is the epidermis, and then here is the dermis, and so this is what's called the epidermal dermal junction. And the reason it lights up is this is an immunofluorescent stain. And so all the stuff that is the bright green, almost yellowish, those are immune complexes, and they shouldn't be there. Uh, those immune complexes are formed by an immune system that is overactive or uh, making an inappropriate kind of antibody. And these antibodies end up in the circulation. They, they bind to each other and to antigens in a form of large complexes. And eventually, the, the circulation brings these to all the tissues. And then they can be deposited, particularly in areas where there is a basement membrane, which is the case in the epidermal dermal junction. And then what happens is they... Um, trigger an inflammatory response. So these immune complexes are sitting here, but they don't just sit there passively. They actually trigger a whole range of inflammatory responses, uh, the activities of various cells of the immune system and of the, of the host defense. And it's all inappropriate. It shouldn't be taking place, but the reason is that these abnormal antibodies were put into the circulation in the first place. So this is a, this is a disorder of the immune system. These antibodies are being made for no really good reason, and they can end up in the skin and cause the problems that you've seen on the previous slides. But they can also end up in other organs. And this is an example, which for those of you who have seen pathology slides of some interest, um, this is a biopsy from a kidney. And I talked about internal organ involvements. Clearly, the one that's most of concern in lupus is often the kidney. If the kidney is affected by lupus, it can be very serious and can read, lead to renal failure and the need for dialysis. And this is an example of a kidney that's affected very badly by lupus. It's obviously not very meaningful if you're not used to looking at these slides, but maybe some of you have seen what a kidney is supposed to look like. It's definitely not supposed to have all these cells here. It's also not supposed to have this pinkish stuff. And there's certainly supposed to be more blood vessels in this general area which are obliterated. So this is a very abnormal finding that suggests that there is a, an immune complex disease. And now you can do the same thing with this that, you, that we did earlier with the skin, that you use an immunofluorescent staining for immune complexes. And if you do that, you see this. You see that it lights up almost everywhere, and all this greenish-yellowish fluorescent material indicates immune complexes, which should not be there. This is a serious internal organ manifestation for lupus. Um, lupus can affect other internal organs as well. It can affect the heart and the lungs. That's fortunately not so, not so common, but it is serious. It can also affect the lining of the heart and the lungs. That's more common. That's called pleurisy or pericarditis. Those are more common manifestations. And what is certainly also a big concern in lupus is when it affects the nervous system, particularly the central nervous system. It's not uncommon, and it can be very serious. So this is just a range of things that can happen in lupus. Here is a list of the official criteria, which is a total of 11. And you can see we talked about the malar rash, that's the butterfly rash. 
We didn't talk about the discoid rash, which is a little bit different and can give scarring. So it's a serious for that reason, cosmetically. The photosensitivity, the sensitivity to sunlight, which we talked about, is very common in lupus patients. Oral ulcers, um, arthritis, we talked about. Serositis is the term for the pleurisy and the pericarditis. The kidney disorder, of course. Neurological, and again, central nervous system is one of the most serious lupus manifestations. Hematological, meaning abnormal blood cell counts. And then, well, obviously, an immunological disorder. As I said earlier, every patient with lupus, by definition, has an immunological disorder. But what is meant here is that you can actually run some tests and you can actually see that the test is abnormal. That's not true in all patients. Virtually all patients have some abnormality on the blood test, but there are a couple of abnormalities that are more helpful than others. One of the very common ones is anti-nuclear antibody, also known as ANA test, or as FANA for fluorescent ANA. And um, that test is so sensitive that in virtually all patients with lupus, it is positive. The problem with that test is that it can also be positive if you don't have lupus. It could be positive for a variety of reasons, including infections, certain medications can make it be positive, and even the, the relatives of lupus patients may also have the positive test, even when they're totally healthy. So this test is helpful because it's almost always positive, but you can have a positive test and still not have lupus. Now, the American College of Rheumatology has sort of said arbitrarily, not totally arbitrarily, but somewhat arbitrarily, that if you have four of these 11 things, then you can be said to have lupus. But the reality, of course, in clinical practice is that you see the patient, if you're clinical instinct or your clinical experience tells you that it's lupus, even if you only have three of these, I think that would still not be out of line to say that it's lupus. And of course, it could be the other way around. Somebody might have some of these things happening more or less by coincidence, and there might be other explanations for it, so that doesn't necessarily make it lupus. I should also mention that that list wasn't complete. There's a lot of other lupus symptoms or lupus manifestations that weren't listed. Well, this is the treatment for lupus, and I try to make it schematic as a pyramid, and the idea is that you try to build it up from the bottom. So if you have a patient with lupus, you try to do some simple things first. For example, the use of topical treatments like creams or ointments for the skin rashes, um, analgesics, meaning simple things like Tylenol, which is um, certainly useful in very mild uh, lupus symptoms, physical therapy and occupational therapy, and education, of course. And I, I want to make a little pitch that the lay organizations, such as Lupus Foundation of America and also the Bay Area Lupus Foundation in San Jose, are very important resources, which for patients are often very helpful because they can provide them with a lot of information that helps them deal better with this chronic disease. Now, these things are often not sufficient by themselves to make the patient feel better or do better. So usually the first line of treatment are the so-called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. That includes some very commonly used things such as ibuprofen, which is available over-the-counter, and also Aleve is now over, available over-the-counter. And um, there's a whole bunch more that are available by prescription only. And they can be very effective for the arthritis and for some of the other manifestations, such as the serositis, the pleurisy, and the pericarditis, which I mentioned, which causes chest pain. They're not always so effective for other lupus manifestations. And so very often when those are not working, we use anti-malarials. Now, this is where usually people get really confused and say, what, has, what does this have to do with malaria? And the answer is that it doesn't have anything to do with malaria. It's totally a chance discovery. There are a certain group of medications that are effective for malaria, and it just turned out that they happen to also work uh, in lupus. It turns out that there is a reason for that. They have an effect on the immune cells that is very similar to what they do to the malaria parasite. 
But at any rate, it just happens to be that it was just a coincidence that they discovered it. Um, these medications help in a mild manner. They are not very powerful. They usually give a little bit of improvement of the symptoms over time. They don't work very fast. They are safe. You know, they can be taken for a long time, for months or years, and usually without any concern, but they have to be uh, taken for a long time to even get an effect. That doesn't always work either, and that's when we get to the corticosteroids. And as a group, the corticosteroids are really the mainstay of treatment for lupus. Corticosteroids include medications such as prednisone, cortisone, medrol, and there's a couple of other ones. And they are used very, very widely. Um, they are also used for a lot of other conditions um, because they have a very broad range of effects. And let me be very clear about it, that prednisone and other corticosteroids are really very, very effective. I mean, there's no denying that they're ex extremely effective medications. The real problem with corticosteroid medications is that they also can have a lot of side effects, particularly with longer-term use. So it's fair to say that corticosteroids are terrific for short-term use, but they're problematic for long-term use. And we're dealing with a, with a long-term disease here, and that's where the problem lies. I'll very briefly just mention, and I think Dr. Lambert probably covered this, that we use immunosuppressive medications for the very severe patients who have severe lupus. And then I also always mention that patients with lupus could also have other things going on, and we have to be cognizant as healthcare providers that they might have something called fibromyalgia, which is a painful condition of the muscles, but not as serious. They might have thyroid disorders, which is very common in lupus patients, and they might have psychiatric disorders, in part actually as an understandable reaction to the fact of having a chronic disease. Let's talk a little bit more about the corticosteroids. Again, I think that you have to see this in balance. They are unbelievably efficacious. Corticosteroids can be life-saving and they can bring about such dramatic improvement in the clinical symptoms of many diseases that it's almost too good to be true. Um, it's, a, it's a long while back for many of you, but in, 19, in the 1950s, or actually in the 1940s, these drugs were discovered and they had such an impact that there were sensational reports about this being a cure for all kinds of diseases, including arthritis, etc. And up to a point that was true if you just looked at the very short-term view, but the problem is really with the long-term treatment. Uh, the Nobel Prize was given away, was awarded for the discovery of corticosteroids. Um, and even before it was realized how many side effects there are. So this is the problem. There are numerous potentially devastating side effects, particularly with long-term use. And what are some of those side effects? Well, this is just a very abbreviated summary sort of uh, weight increases. That's something that almost every patient experiences virtually right away. Increase in weight, fluid retention, and also a redistribution of body weight to be more, to have more fatty tissue in the, on the trunk. Skin thinning, bruising, and of course also a sort of like an acne almost, getting a steroid dermatitis. Um, the muscles usually end up being somewhat wasted from long-term corticosteroids. In the eyes, you can get glaucoma and cataract. Patients can actually develop diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, problems with stomach ulcers. Um, and then there's all kinds of effects on mood. People may sometimes become very uh, euphoric from steroids, which might not be so bad if it's, if it's you know, within limits, but it can be really out of control. Or they could become very depressed, either way. And then finally, the osteoporosis, which is a big concern, especially with patients who are already having a disease of the muscles and the skeleton, that could be a real concern as well. So lots of lots of side effects, and I don't want to dwell on it too long, just to bring home the message that if you have a long-term disease, treatment with corticosteroids or with prednisone is not ideal for, for all these reasons. So what are the therapeutic challenges for, for us in terms of where we are now with treatment of lupus? Well, I, I mentioned already the second and the third point, that there is the need for, for, for um, 
obviating the need for corticosteroids so that you want to find an alternative to corticosteroids. And the immunosuppressives are only partially successful as that. And then also the long-term management because this is a long-term disease. But I did not mention the first point yet, which is that lupus comes with uh, systemic symptoms as well. And it's a point that's often overlooked. Look, I've mentioned the arthritis, I've mentioned the skin rash, the kidneys. But what I didn't mention is that when you, when you talk to a lupus patient, they will usually tell you that in addition to having the joint pains and having the skin rash and having maybe problems with their kidneys or with their uh, pleurisy, they also just don't feel well. They feel very tired. They um, are just not up to their usual energy level. They have difficulty performing their usual daily life activities. They may have some difficulty thinking. It seems like it's affecting their ability to concentrate and to remember well. So that's called cognitive symptoms. And those are part of the so-called systemic symptoms of lupus. And I don't know what it's like, but I imagine that it's very much like when you have a flu or another viral infection and you try to imagine getting out of bed in the morning and you're lying and you think, well, actually I could if I just really try to, and you get up and after a few minutes you just go like, oh my, I'm not going to be able to do this. And you go back because you just have this ter terrible fatigue and this terrible sense of de deprivation of energy which has to do with the presence of inflammatory substances in the circulation. And there's a number of well-understood mechanisms, and there's also a lot of it that we don't understand. So we try to do better with treatment. Now let me briefly digress for you. Um, this is a painting by, um, by a countryman of mine, Jan Steen. It's hanging in The Hague, where I grew up. And it's in a very nice museum. If you ever visit Holland, um, most people go to the Rijksmuseum. Has anybody here been to the Rijksmuseum? Well, um, that's what usually people go to and go to the Rijksmuseum, and it's in Amsterdam. But if you has anybody been to the Mauritshuis Museum? See, I didn't think you would have. But actually, it's a nicer museum. That's where I grew up. I'm unbiased, but it, it's a very nice museum. It's more like a home. You know, you get like you go into a nice room, and there's all these paintings on the wall. It's really nice. And some of the the best paintings by the Dutch masters are are in the Mauritshuis Museum. And this is a, an example of that. It's a painting by Jan Steen. It's called um, The Doctor's Visit. And it's in the 17th century Holland. It's, a, it's a, a home, and there's this young lady lying in bed, and she's not well. I, I don't know if she has lupus, okay? I'm just, that's, not, that's not the issue. But anyway, so she's lying in bed. She's not well. And this is the doctor. This is apparently what doctors used to wear in those days. And I guess this is the chambermaid who is bringing the doctor a glass of wine, a tradition which I, I believe ought to be restored. Um, <laughs> At any rate, this doctor is um, going to have to investigate what the patient's condition is, and he's performing a diagnostic test, um, of a bit unusual for us. There's, here, this is a foot warmer. This is something that you can put your feet on to keep them warm. And he has put, and it's probably hard to see from where you're sitting, but he has put this leather um, shoelace on top of the warming stove. So now the leather is supposed to become warm and then give off fumes. And it was said that if the, um, the patient would breathe the fumes of the smoldering leather, and she, if she be, became nauseated, then that would be proof that she was pregnant. So this is a, a pregnancy test. You can use it as a home pregnancy test, I suppose. Um, and, and so, and, but the point is that in, it was recognized, I think, as early, you know, uh, when people first became aware of anything, that pregnancy really does cause significant changes in the physiology and in the normal functioning of the, of the human uh, uh, physical and, and uh, health status. And these kind of changes seen in pregnancy are something that has always intrigued us in lupus as well. And I mentioned to you that in lupus, uh, women who do have um, lupus, if they become pregnant, may have a higher risk of flaring up of the disease. Now, um, 
it, and this has, has spurred some investigation of the role of hormones in lupus. And this is a very simplified metabolism of estrogen. It goes from estro estradiol or E2 to estrone E1. And then there are two pathways. And estriol is much more endocrinologically active than 2-methoxyestrone. And it's also more immunologically active. It has effects on the immune system that are more um, profound. And it turns out that in lupus, this pathway is favored by a big margin. Uh, there's also another abnormality, which is not, not in this slide, and it has to do with the male hormones, with the androgens. In women, there is, of course, women also have certain amounts of androgens, testosterone, etc. And it turns out that the levels of the androgens in female patients with lupus are lower than normal. So there's more active estrogens, female hormones, and less active male hormones. So clearly the balance is out of control. In addition, importantly, in male patients with lupus, of which there are fewer, but they, of course, do exist, there's almost invariably a hypogonadic state, a lower than uh, the normal androgen level. And there is particularly an interesting phenomenon that's uh, Klinefelter syndrome, which is an X, um, XXY <coughs> karyotype. So there's actually an abnormality of the level of the chromosomes. And those uh, men who get this um, are at higher risk of getting lupus. So there's a number of ways that hormones seem to interact with lupus in the first place. And that brings me to the real topic that I wanted to talk about today, which is dehydroepiandrosterone, or DHEA. This is a slide from before PowerPoint uh, came into being, so it's a little bit clumsy, but this is the basic molecule. And this is the name, and it's, of course, abbreviated DHEA. And um, if you've been to any health food stores lately, you probably have seen DHEA, but I can tell you that we were investigating DHEA a long time before this all became so popular. Um, and this, this hormone is a natural, naturally occurring steroid hormone. It's a steroid, but of course there are many different kinds of steroids, and anabolic steroids and corticosteroids and mineralocorticosteroids are very different in terms of what they do. And, and DHEA, being a steroid hormone, is produced by the adrenal glands. And so we all have this circulating in our bloodstream. It's considered a weak androgen or male hormone, but in fact the levels in men and women are virtually, uh, virtually identical. It's present in normal individuals, in healthy people throughout life, although there's a little bit of an age-related decline. And um, as I said, the levels are comparable in men and women. Now, why would we even think of using DHEA in lupus? Well, some of it I've already alluded to. There is this sense that androgens and estrogens are present in an abnormal ratio in lupus patients, so that the female patients with lupus often have lower than normal levels of androgens, higher than normal levels of estrogens, or higher activity of estrogens. And so you could think... Sim in a simplified way, well, let's give the patients an androgen and try to restore the balance. So that makes some sort of sense. Secondly, um, actually, let me skip point number two, and I'll get back to it later. Let me go to point number three on the slide, which is that actually it was known from previous investigation that lupus patients have lower than normal levels of DHA in their circulating bloodstream. Nobody could ever figure out if that was the cause, probably not the cause, but maybe a contributing cause, or maybe the result of the disease, or maybe something that was caused by the medications that lupus patients are often prescribed. And finally, uh, the last point here is that the lupus type of disease that these mice get, which I talked about earlier, if you give these mice DHEA, they actually do better. So now what about this immunomodulatory thing on, uh, on the slide? Well, that is where he, our interest at Stanford actually came about because of Dr. Um, Noboru Suzuki and Ed Engelman at the Stanford Blood Center were doing research to see if DHA had an effect on lymphocytes, the main cells of the immune system. And they found that, yes, there is an effect. It turns out that if you put DHA into a culture tube with these cells, they produce more interleukin-2. The lymphocytes that are the T lymphocytes 
fall into two broad categories and they're called T helper one and T helper two. And these two categories of cells are indistinguishable if you look at the cells, but they are different in terms of the kinds of substances that they produce. And they are sort of steering the immune system in a different direction. The T helper one kind of cell will steer the immune system towards fighting off viruses and um, being a little bit more um, active at the level of the cells, whereas the T helper two type is more active probably in the defense against parasites, but that doesn't seem to be a major issue for most of our patients. Um, but it's also probably the kind of lymphocyte that is responsible for causing allergic reactions and maybe also for the abnormal antibodies that are found in lupus. So we think that in, in lupus there may be an imbalance between these two kinds of cells with too much, sorry, too much of this kind and too little of this kind. And as you can see, there's some sort of a feedback loop whereby these two types keep each other in check. And what we think is going on, and this is just a hypothesis, okay? So you don't have to, um, this is not necessarily true, but we think this might be going on, is that estrogens tend to promote differentiation into this direction, to the T helper two type of cell, whereas DHA might be going the other way. And that's another reason why we think that maybe DHA might be a helpful treatment or additional treatment for lupus. So we wonder, does that actually work? So we said, well, let's do a clinical trial. Now, first of all, the question of, of course, doing clinical trial is not that easy, but we can start out by a simple way of doing it. It's just taking the patient and explaining to them what's going on and saying, let's try to see if you take this, are you going to feel better? And then, of course, you have to rely a little bit on the subjective judgment of the patient. And that's what we did in this slide. We gave patients DHA and then asked the patients by their own assessment, were they getting better? And you can see that just on an, on an arbitrarily chosen scale, the patients actually felt better after three months and then really quite a bit better after six months. So that was encouraging. We also asked the physicians that were taking care of the patient if that was their impression too. And they were maybe not quite as impressed, but they also thought that was a little bit better overall. And then we used something called SLEDA. SLEDA means systemic lupus erythematosus disease activity index. And what it does is it's a, really, it's a list of all kinds of symptoms and signs, manifestations of lupus. And you basically sit down with the patient and you go over the whole list and you say, well, have you had this? Have you had that? Have you had this in the last 10 days? And then basically for each of those things, they get a number of points and the, the more serious um, features, excuse me, the more serious features get more points. So for example, uh, you know, a kidney um, manifestation of lupus gets higher points than a skin rash. And uh, you add it all up and you get a number. And that number has been, that has been validated in studies and it shows pretty good correspondence to the actual activity of the lupus. So the SLEDA score is sort of an aggregate measure of lupus activity. And in this study, it, so, it showed that the SLEDA score did go down, um, especially after three months it was down and then it sort of stayed the same or maybe went down just a tiny little bit more after six months. So this was the first go around. This was only done in 10 patients, very small study, but it certainly seemed somewhat encouraging. Next, we did a more long-term study. This was 50 patients, and they were given the DHEA for a whole year. And you can see again the SLEDA score, which is the boxes here. It went down after three months, and after six months, it went a little bit down again after nine months and after 12 months. And <clears throat> one of the things that is encouraging here is that it keeps on going down. So actually, it's not just a short-term effect. This is a trend towards improvement for fairly long-term treatments, well, one year. Also in this slide is the prednisone dose. Now remember, I, I mentioned earlier, prednisone is really the mainstay of treatment for lupus. And what happens is if you give a patient, if you take a patient with lupus that's on prednisone, 
they would like to lower the dosage of prednisone because of the side effects, but they are unable to because of the lupus. So if their lupus gets better, the, the next logical step for the patient and for their physician is to lower the prednisone dosage. So it turns out you can actually use the dosage of prednisone as an indirect way of gauging how well the lupus is doing. And so what we pl plotted here is the actual dosage of prednisone on average in these 50 patients. And you can see that that went down as well. And what we thought is that the combination of being able to lower the prednisone and having the better disease score is a very strong argument that this medication is actually doing something beneficial for the patient. Now, that wouldn't really be enough to prove uh, to, to prove that it's an effective medication. It's a, it's a very positive and we were very encouraged by it, but what's really needed is a, a controlled study. And um, we did do a controlled study, but actually, oh, I have a slide here with side effects. Can I talk about side effects first? This is just uh, to show you that DHA really didn't have as many side effects as we were concerned about. Their only side effect that really happened a lot was acne. Most people who take DHA at the dosages we used, at least, did get acne, about uh, two-thirds. But I can reassure you that it was usually mild and it was not generally felt to be a significant problem. Um, hirsutism, that is excessive hair growth, was also seen by about one-third of the patients, but again, was not perceived in most instances as a problem. Um, and then all the other side effects listed here are things that did get reported, but often just by one or two patients, and it's, of course, not entirely certain that it was caused by DHA. Most of these things were transient, so they happened while the person started taking the DHA for a week or for a couple of weeks and then resolved. So we think this, the side effects, you know, compared to other medications, were very um, acceptable. So we did a, a study that was a little bit more scientifically sound, which is called a double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And what that means, uh, to be simple, is that if you take a group of patients um, you totally randomly decide who is going to get the actual drug, the DHA, and who is going to get a dummy, which is really a, a capsule that looks the same, but it doesn't have anything in it except an inert starch sort of powder. And it's done double-blinded, which means that the patient is not allowed to know whether they're getting the actual drug or not, and even the physician that is seeing the patient and taking care of the patient or the study physician is not allowed to know what they're getting. The only person who actually does know is the pharmacist which has to be a special pharmacist doing the study who takes care of this randomization process. And so they keep a log of that, and then after the study is completely done, then the code is broken, and at that point, you can find out which patient was actually getting what. And that's, that's the, the standard of, you know, the, the standard of doing clinical trials is the double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. The placebo, that means that it's, that is the, uh, the dummy capsule, and it's, for some reason it's always called placebo. Um, there's something called a placebo effect, which means if people take a, a, a dummy pill, even if it's a dummy pill and they don't know, they might still feel better because of the sort of psychological, you know, thinking that you're getting something. That does help. But um, so that's what basically we did. And these are the investigators that participated. And this was a fairly small study. We, used, uh, we, we started with a group of 30 patients, and it was only for three months. And... Basically, over three months, what we observed was that if the patients were taking the placebo, they actually got a little bit worse. This is using the SLEDA score. And if they were taking the DHA, they got a little bit better. But the difference wasn't huge, and so actually it wasn't statistically significant. Um, but it was in the right direction, so that was sort of halfway okay. And then the other result was that if you asked the patients how they were doing and they were taking placebo, they actually didn't get much better, or actually they got a little bit worse. And if they were taking a DHA, they did get better by a certain amount. And um, 
This is not a huge result, it's not a great result, but it's certainly suggestive that there was a real effect in the patients that were treated with DHEA. I should also probably mention at this point that the results were very different for, from patient to patient. So if you see this, it doesn't mean that every patient went from here to there. There were some patients which went from here to here, and other patients sort of stayed the same. So this is the average score. Um, there certainly were a number of instances where patients felt that they were doing unbelievably well, and that was probably the most important reason for us to be encouraged and to continue these studies. So based on this, we also looked in this group of patients how many had a lupus flare. It was maybe something I um, capitalized on earlier, but if you have lupus, if you have a patient with lupus, they typically have flares of disease every once in a while. So they are doing okay, and then suddenly the disease gets worse, gets worse again. It's called a flare. And... Um, it turned out that among the f we ended up having 14 patients evaluable at the end of the study. One patient in each group dropped out. And uh, out of those 14 patients, on the ones that had DHA, there were three that had a flare, and in the placebo group, eight. So that was a pretty big difference. So we concluded from this trial that DHA was well-tolerated and appeared safe. DHA, DHA therapy was associated with improvements in outcome measures, and placebo was not, but that it was also not statistically significant and that a larger trial was warranted. Now, since then, of course, that has been done, and I'll get back to that in a moment. The DHA, we said, shows promise as a therapeutic agent in SLE. Now, after we did this, we got together with a large group of rheumatologists from all over the country and um, put together a multi-center trial in about 25 different medical centers and involving 200, 200 patients. And again, they were randomized with a double-blind and placebo-controlled uh, approach, and so those patients have all been, have gone through the trial, and that trial is completed, um, the only thing is that um, the, the data are still secured and it, it's still not known who was getting the placebo and who was getting the actual DHEA. And we'll have to wait until all the data have been reviewed independently and everything has been, you know, is done the right way. So in a couple of months, hopefully, we'll know. Um, this is where it stands now. I just want to mention as a conclusion, as a concluding remark that um, we wouldn't have been able to do the initial studies without support from the Northern California chapter of the Arthritis Foundation and the Bay Area Lupus Foundation for which we are very grateful. Um, so um, that's what I had to um, say. Thank you very much, and I can certainly take a lot of questions. Yes, we did do that, um, because that makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it's a very logical question. Um, maybe it's the, pa the patients who have the very low levels that if you give them the DHA, they get better. Or it may be that if you give the same amount of DHA, one person might come up to a higher level than the other, and it may be better. And unfortunately, it turns out there's no very obvious and clear-cut relationship. We do find evidence that a certain level of DHA in the bloodstream is optimal so that the patients have the overall best results on average, but for each individual patient it may still be a little bit different. Yeah, the adjustment was because the baseline, um, the, the groups were not entirely similar at baseline. Um, so there was there was a statistical correction necessary for the baseline differences, but the fact of the matter is that the baseline, you know, whether you, whether you have to do that correction is uh, is sort of a matter of debate, and so I gave both of the p values, and as you see, in one instance it got better, and in the other instance it got worse. So it's basically a wash.
In terms of etiology, well, yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it certainly supports the whole notion that the hormonal influences are, are very, very important in lupus. Um, I think there is an interplay between hormones and the immune system, which we have some direct evidence for. I also, what I didn't show you is that if you do the same immune tests um, on the patients who are in the study, which is the interleukin-2 secretion, which is abnormal in lupus patients, it does actually normalize. Um, so I think that the, the role of hormones is very incontrovertible in lupus, and it may be through an effect on the immune system. Uh, but there are also unanswered questions to that, and part of it is that it's so hard to predict um, at which point somebody who may have a hormonal change is going to have a disease flare or not. For example, when I mentioned pregnancy, only about one of three women who has lupus uh, and becomes pregnant will, in fact, have a flare. Of course, the risk is, and then I'm talking about a serious flare with kidney disease. Um, so that is... Um, that is still unclear. There's obviously more to it, but I, I think it definitely supports both the idea that hormones are important and the idea that hormones have an effect on the immune system. You know, that's a very good question, and actually, and the answer is basically no, and the reason is it's very hard to do that because the levels of progesterone fluctuate in a cyclical fashion. So to make valid comparisons, you have to really make sure to measure them at the same time in a cycle or to do them very frequently so you can actually plot the cyclical changes. Um, what is known about the metabolism of DHA is that it's only, it, there's very little that is actually converted to either estrogens or to progesterones in the premenopausal women. In postmenopausal women who are not on estrogen replacement therapy, you might expect a larger percentage to be converted to estrogens. Um, and that had actually caused us to pause whether we really wanted to treat women who were postmenopausal and who had lupus with DHEA. But in the end, we decided to do that as well, and the results were actually pretty similar to premenopausal. No, no, pregnenolone? No, we haven't. And it, it has actually been debated, uh, you know, we, we actually went back several times and said, well, shouldn't we do more detailed studies of the endocrinology of the AHEA? And part of not doing it was that there is a large study going on at the University of California in San Diego done by endocrinologists who are specifically, they're not looking at lupus, they're looking at otherwise healthy individuals, and particularly in the elderly, and giving them DHEA and seeing what happens in the metabolic sort of, on the metabolic side. And that includes the, met the metabolism of all the, the different steroids. So they are looking at that. Oh, you're welcome. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.